MIB Agents Osteobites webinar and podcast presents the latest in osteosarcoma treatment, research, innovation, and hope each week. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Van Tyne of Washington University in St. Louis on osteosarcoma tumor metabolism. Welcome to Osteobites, everybody. Hope you have your snack. Um, I have my nutter butters and a lot of caffeine to keep up with Dr. Van Tyne today. And um, yeah, so let's go. Uh, Dr. Van Tyne is with us. He is an associate professor of medicine and associate professor of pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. This is where he is the sarcoma program director and co-director of the adolescent and young adult program at the Siteman Cancer Center. He has been the head of the Sarcoma Clinical Trials Program at Washington University for the past decade. Dr. Van Tyne's laboratory is dedicated to the understanding of metabolism of the metabolism of sarcoma and has recently developed a dual metabolic therapy for the treatment of, gosh, here it goes, <laughs> for the treatment of complex cytogenic sarcomas based on the exploitation of arginosuchinate synthetase one deficiency and glutaminase, glutaminase inhibition. <sighs> there you go. <laughs> Our panel today includes 2021 MIB junior board member, Karis Grubis, 2020 junior board member, Ryan Kennington, OsteoWarrior mom, Allie Murdoff, and Amy Woodcheck, a physician's assistant and childhood cancer survivor. I'm your host, Ann Graham, president of MIB Agents. Uh, MIB Agents is a pediatric osteosarcoma nonprofit dedicated to making it better for our community of patients, caregivers, doctors, and researchers with the goal of less toxic, more effective treatments, and a cure for this aggressive bone cancer. MIB, agent do, MIB Agents does this in three ways through direct patient and family support with many programs to ensure that no one walks alone through this disease, through education, including our annual factor conference, osteobites, testing and research directory and our book. Finally, we do this through research by funding it, sharing it and supporting researchers and physicians like Dr. Brian Van Tyne. Would you get us started by introducing yourself, please? I said, I don't know if there's anything left to say about myself. I mean, <laughs> everything that we're about to go through today actually started at the first factor meeting. And because of that, it's sort of neat to see something that was an idea where I, I met everybody that was directly impacted across the world and got a direct funder that came straight from MIB and brought this to fruition. And we hope to complete the circle in the next few years and actually bring it to the patients. My name is Kara Skrubis. I'm 19 years old from New York. I was diagnosed in January, 2020 with osteosarcoma in my left tibia. I underwent nine months of chemotherapy as well as a left above the knee amputation. And now I am doing immunotherapy. Hi, my name is Ryan. I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma back in 2014. I had a limb salvaging surgery. And unfortunately, a year after I finished treatment, I had a one lung metastasis and I had that removed via VATS. Um, however, since I have been cancer free for almost five years now, and in that time, I graduated from the University of Delaware and I am now a member of the Schiffman Lab. My name is Allie and I am a mom to an austere warrior named Charlotte, who is 17, who was diagnosed in July of 2018. 
She is currently um, battling her osteosarcoma with a third relapse, but doing a great job of it. And I'm happy to be here today. Hi, I'm Amy Woodcheck. I'm a physician assistant in pediatrics, most recently in oncology. Um, also a survivor of leukemia. It's been 36 years now and uh, have a big passion for my patients with osteo. We've got to make it better. You know, I think that it's kind of an exciting uh, a time for osteosarcoma. You know, there is, because of groups like MIB, a new focus, and it's not just on chasing grant money anymore. It's actually about making it better. And I really took that to heart, uh, which is, you know, if you don't actually drive things around the full circle, uh, you don't actually do anything. And by what I mean by that is if you're not driving what you find in your laboratory into the clinic, you're not actually accomplishing anything. And I think it's very interesting. What we're going to talk about is actually the second group of work in osteosarcoma I've done. The first is actually in clinical trial. Uh, you know, we actually did an expansion of some work we did on arginosexitate synthetase one, which uh, is the worst named enzyme in the entire lexicon. Uh, and we actually have given it to 10 osteo, our, our regiment to 10 osteosarcoma patients. And around the time of ASCO, I can actually talk about the results. And so, you know, it's important when you find things that, you know, the bar is not just to make sure we get to a paper, the bar is to make sure we get to a patient. And so I have kind of spent most of my career trying not to live in a box. And if you just accept that things are going to be the way they are, you change nothing. And so, you know, about 12 years ago, I said, well, different metabolism seems to be a really good place to go. Everything's an enzyme, everything's druggable, but you have to actually understand it. And I think what you're going to see over the course of the day is I'm going to try to keep something that's very complicated that was just published as simple as can be uh, and really show you that Everybody who's had high-dose methotrexate, I hope you'll all vote to remove it. <laughs> I hope you all think it wasn't fun, because <laughs> that's really how this project started. I looked at my grad student and said, you know, this drug we're going to talk about today should work in osteosarcoma. We use high-dose methotrexate. And so I think if you start in the clinic, which, you know, it's really important to have a clinical base to really talk about your disease. If you really think, you know, these drugs only use, are only used in osteosarcoma and lymphoma. Maybe the biology is different. I know that in the era of big data, everybody wants to find how everything's alike and what little corner goes here, here, and there. But sometimes you should ask the opposite question, which is what actually makes bone tumors different? And then I'm going to show you, you actually have a different amino acid addiction and a very unique glucose biology. And you can't go on a glucose-free diet. Your liver just replaces it. And you can't go on a serine glycine-free diet because it's impossible. Uh, but we can actually drug it. And I'm going to show you what we just published. And as you know, with all publications, they're a year behind where we are. And I'm going to show you where we actually are now. And so as is required by my university, I am the most conflicted person that you will ever see because I have a, a voice with almost every company, but that's actually to your benefit. That means that there's an osteosarcoma voice in the room if there's a drug. And so being involved with companies is the only way we get drugs to rare tumors. And so in a lot of ways, this is a, a mark of success, which means I, I sit on a lot of Zoom calls now. And so 
very simply, you know, what does tumor metabolism mean? It's really a carbon biology, right? Carbon makes your DNA, your RNA, your proteins, your amino acids, and your fats. And it's a question of how you get from basic carbon to these building blocks. And most of the time, and the most important fundamental building block is either glucose or an amino acid called glutamine. And we're working on drugging both of those in one direction. But there's such an adaptive problem, uh, which is if you put pressure on any one point of tumor metabolism, it'll just evolve very fast. And so this actually makes drug development a little complicated because a lot of people want that. I take a pill, the tumor goes away. Yeah, that makes sense, right? What you actually do in my world is you take a pill, you cause a different metabolism, and then you drug it. And so what you're going to see is we, the people with bad osteosarcoma, the one that just is really, really aggressive, have the biology we found, which means it's probably druggable. And so want to give you a few little thoughts. Oh, my pictures aren't going to work really well. Let's, let's skip over this because it's not going to play on the internet. So let me show you a different thing. So this is glucose, and it's going to come into a cell, into something that's called glycolysis. What that does is break down glucose into various parts. And in normal cells, we use this to make something called ATP, which is why you all want to drink your Coke and have your nutter butter, because that gives you a lot of extra energy, right? And you kind of get onto a metabolite called pyruvate, which then gives you a choice of excreting into something called lactate or going over into your mitochondria and making more ATP. But what you find is that off of glycolysis are a bunch of building blocks where you can make nucleic acids like DNA and RNA and serine and phospholipids and amino acids. In most of your cells in your body, except for your hair and your gut, which is why you lose your hair and you get diarrhea when you get chemo. These pathways aren't that active, right? So glucose is being used so that you stay awake and you can think you're making ATP. And from a very simplistic way, if you get into cancer metabolism in a kind of a very different way of looking at it is, you know, the purpose of cancer is never to actually kill you. The purpose of cancer is only to make more. And so what you have is something that just wants to keep replicating, sort of like the Borg. And so as the Borg take over and over, when eventually they'll take over everything, have nothing to take over and die out, right? But in cancer metabolism, it's really about making building blocks. And so all of a sudden, glucose has a new purpose. So it actually, instead of going all the way down here, it likes to express something that's only expressed in a blastocyst, which is a group of cells before it implants, before you were alive. It puts out this isoform, it puts a block here. And just like with any dam, you'll get a buildup. And so glucose now can't go down here. It builds back up and the dam releases and starts making nucleic acids and phospholipids and amino acids. And so because of that, cancer is really just taking these carbon molecules and making the stuff it needs to make more. And so we know that there's a couple of ways where biomarkers in leukemia have been used. Metabolic biomarkers are not a new idea. They come from the 60s. There's an amino acid called asparaginase. And what you can see is in cancer cells, if you don't have an enzyme called asparagine synthetase, you can't make your own asparagine. And if you can't make your own asparagine, your cells die. It's a necessary amino acid. 
the, if you go out into the bloodstream, uh, everything's normal. And so there's a drug called asparaginase, which we give to kids with ALL. And by destroying all the extracellular arginine, you actually help kill the cancer. And so a long time ago, we started saying, well, we can do this and look at the 156 new kinds of sarcoma, of which, you know, osteosarcoma is one, and it probably has another 10 subgroups at least, and subgroups of those subgroups that we need to figure out. But a lot of them have some things in common. And so we really went to try to find this parallel for osteosarcoma. And so we've done a whole bunch of really funnily named enzymes. One of my favorite is studying me. I love the projects where I get to study me. Uh, you know, PHGDH, which is where we're going, isn't the sexiest thing, but it does get to Gator. And I like studying Gator because you can run, you have to be able to pun things to work in my lab. So if we kind of move on to osteosarcoma, I know most of you know this, but we're going to really talk about, you know, a tumor that's different. You know, if you take sarcomas, the aggressive components probably a hundred different kinds. The only really thing they have are cell of origins that are mesenchymal. You know, we do a lot of bad things by trying to just compound a bunch of tumors that are different types, throw a drug at them and wonder why nothing works. Just like you wouldn't uh, throw a bunch of things at prostate cancer, brain cancer, or breast cancer anymore. We do this in sarcoma and they're that different. And so as you get into what is osteosarcoma, it's a tumor from bone. And bone is different. Bone is the reason we can walk, right? In terms of evolution, bone has different biology. And, you know, I, I'm selling this to the choir, but osteosarcoma is the uh, most common malignant primary bone cancer. It usually occurs near areas of rapidly dividing bone. And, you know, I actually see more adults with osteosarcoma than I see kids probably by three to one at this point. Uh, but, you know, I see a lot of people in their 70s and osteosarcoma is common. And I don't think it's the same disease. You know, when the DNA damage you have when you're young is very different than the DNA damage you have when you're old. And luckily, if you're young, you can withstand the treatments. It gets much harder to treat somebody who's 70. And so if we get into osteosarcoma, there's a whole huge literature of what it takes to get from a mesenchymal stem cell to an osteoblast. And this involves signaling through things like SOX9 and RUNX2, and these control gigantic programs that say the cell should become this, and then this should become this. And as you move through the metalloproteinases and then the Wnt family, you basically need to activate a whole bunch of signals. But these are also the same signals that made your bone in the first place, right? You know, some of the hematopoietic stem cells can lead to osteoclasts. <clears throat> and so lots of people have focused on these families for the last 30 years. And what's unfortunate is for the last 40 years, we've had the same treatment for osteosarcoma. And it hasn't changed. And so as you get into this, we know much more about this disease than we ever have. But we haven't found really anything that's really advanced and I'm talking a game changer, you know, not just let's find a disease that moves the bar by two months. I'm talking about, let's move it by a year. Let's move it by five years. Let's actually move a bar, right? And so, you know, if you get into the classic therapies, the classic therapies are what we're still using. They involve doxorubicin, where now you all have to worry about cardiotoxicity for the rest of your life. You know, cisplatin, 
which you know takes out your hearing, and high dose methotrexate, which is just two weeks out of five in the hospital. And so when you get into methotrexate, I don't know how many people actually understand what it does, but there's a cycle, and I think I have a better picture coming up. I'm gonna show you how glucose gets made into serine, and serine gets made into an amino acid called glycine. That single carbon, when it goes down into what we call the serine folate cycle, is used to make AMP and GMP and nucleic acids. But when you go and inhibit dihydrofolate reductase with methotrexate, you basically cause a, a pause. And so you can't make any DNA. And then you come back and hit it with chemotherapy again. And we've learned a lot that I didn't know. And I had made a huge bunch of assumptions about methotrexate that we're going to teach you about today. And so but this is toxic and falls rescue with the Govorin and you're in the hospital for five days. And I thought, well, you know, this is this new upstream target. And so this is what data looks like. Don't worry about the, like the details, but we get these huge maps of all the metabolites across osteosarcoma. We do this all with what we call MASC and we get all the nucleotides under different conditions and ask what goes where and thought, well, is there something special about osteosarcoma? And what jumps out really quickly are the glycolytic pathway, and that goes straight into serine glycine. And this is connected, very interestingly, to something called methionine biology. To translate a protein, the first amino acid must actually be something called methionine, or more specifically, methionine. And your serine folate cycle is actually connected to the SAM cycle. This is going to become really important because by the time I'm done, you're going to know about methionine, you're going to know about branch chain amino acids, and you're going to know about serine, and you're going to know how to drug it. But just conceptually, just realize this is an amino acid you need to pr translate proteins. This is a cycle you need to make nucleic acids, and we're going to screw up all of these, and we're going to do it selectively. And so then, this is where this is interesting. When glucose comes into a cell, it gets about halfway down glycolysis till it gets to an enzyme called PHGDH. And in, and in enzymology, you're looking for something that's called rate limiting, meaning that nothing moves faster than it, nothing processes faster than it. If you can cause a block there, you cause a problem. This is the rate limiting enzyme through three enzymes, three PHP, three PS, which takes you from glucose to serine and from serine to glycine. And that, once again, screws up folate and methionine. This is another fancy way of looking and saying this little carbon here, as you go from serine to glycine, which is two carbons, ends up here, and it kind of follows around. And this ends up in methylated histones and DNA. And so everything you want to, like, screw up comes back up to, you know, that Coke you're drinking with the sugar. <laughs> and so... Another fancy way of looking at this is as glucose goes through a cell, you can either go down to pyruvate and head towards the mitochondria, or you can go this way. And what I'm going to show you is, for some reason, there's no transporters in bone biology to bring in serine on its own. And so the way your bones are making serine is from glucose. If you get into the Ewing's data that was beautifully presented by Lee Hellman, they have transporters for serine. The easiest way to short circuit this is just to pick up serine, right? 
if you're going to make glucose into serine or you just take up serine. These transporters aren't here in bone biology. This is what's exciting. This means we can do something, right? Without doing some really weird diet where you eat mashed potatoes. And so there's new drugs here. Josh Rabinowitz at Princeton came up with one, and there's another company with another one. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in going after this. Because if you can poison this, and this isn't here, you can get into lipids and protein, DNA and RNA and methylation, and you screw everything up, right? So, one of the experiments we did very, very early on was with Andy Livingston and his team, Andy Anderson. And I think that this was kind of one of the funnest things I ever did, because we're all very good friends. And so, you know, as you hop around doing second uh, opinions, don't think we don't know each other. <laughs> But they had created what we call a tumor microarray. And what that is, is a slide with about 400 different samples on it of osteosarcoma. And we stained them for, well, PHGDH expression. And they fell into four categories. And the way we looked at it was they had no staining, they had very light staining, they had decent staining, or they had high staining. And then what we said was, is there a difference in outcomes by staining? And that kind of was shocking to me because I've never seen curves look like this outside of breast cancer. So if you look and say, if I have osteosarcoma and a high expression of PHGDH and I'm treated in MD Anderson, how did I do? If you look at relapse-free survival, it was maybe a year and a half versus six. If you look at overall survival, it's maybe four years versus greater than 15. So what that really shows, and this isn't months, we're used to seeing this in months when we look at clinical trials, this is in years, that patients that overexpress PHGDH are the bad players. Not, sorry, not the patients, the tumors, I apologize for that. But this also means that that's the group where we can drug it. Potentially also means that this is the group where you don't need high-dose methotrexate because the target may not be that important. There's another way of looking at this. Remember, I'm after methotrexate. It's, it's sort of my mission to get rid of it, right? And if you look at that, you say, well, this is now a target, and it has biologic meaning. We then went and looked at a second data set and found the same thing. So this repeated in two different data sets where your more aggressive cancers have this more fully activated. And so, you know, what happens when you go after these targets? So the first and most surprising thing we did, because I was shocked, is we started treating cells with osteosarcoma cell line cells with high-dose methotrexate. You know what happens? They stopped growing. Nobody died. I thought methotrexate was a toxic agent. I've never seen this data. I went back and talked to Peter Houghton. They, they did these original experiments in mice. Nobody went and saw if it actually killed anything. It just stopped too much from growing. You know, methotrexate may be actually used as a prime to make the chemotherapy that comes in right behind it work better so the tumor's more in sync. That may be what's actually going on in the patients. There's a real reason to do this. The clear benefit of methotrexate is there. That's not in question, but I like to get rid of it because I have a pill. Or actually, two pills I'm going to get to. And so, but this was surprising. All of a sudden we had no cell death. So we then 
and this is done on a very fancy machine that takes a picture every hour. We looked at what happens when we drug PHGDH directly. And so if you watch cells grow in culture, this is what happens over 48 hours and eventually things just become confluent. But if you treat them with NCT503, they grow much slower over the course of 72 hours, which means they all had about one cell division in them before they went flat, right? And so what you have is an active drug, but it also didn't kill. We did sound the same thing with the second PHTDH inhibitor. I don't know who names these things because PKUMDLWQ2101 was not my first choice. I don't know if it's yours. Uh, but you have an active drug for stopping growth, but I don't think that's the bar you want. You actually want me to make the tumors go away, right? And so we started looking at if whether or not we could actually cause cell death. One of the important things to realize is that if you see an effect of a drug above 10 micromolar, as an organization, you do not care. It's so off target that like, it wasn't until we got to you know, 30 or 45 micromolar that we could see cell death with these drugs. It's probably off target, probably doesn't matter. The second drug, you had to get out to 100 micromolar to see death. You know, we can see a five micromolar complete cytostasis. So we knew what we were doing. We knew we had drug one. We knew we needed to find drug two. And so then it came a question of, well, where do you go, right? So we knew we were looking at glucose incorporation. And so the first thing we said was, well, if we take heavy labeled glucose and look how much accumulates at 3 g in the presence of an inhibitor, you find you get a block here, you get a buildup, right? If you then basically drug and say, what happens down here? The drug was on target because once you drugged PHGDH, you weren't finding any of these by mass spec down here. And you've also seen that you see this fall in metabolites, which is going to get into part of the story of why serine isn't coming in. And so as we started looking by nanostring, which is a fancy way of looking at RNA, we find that if you treat cells and they stop dividing, your nucleic acid synthesis pathway scores go down. That's expected, right? If you're not dividing, you're not making nucleic acids. You know, if you look at your methionine and your methylation patterns, we found that we all of a sudden got this huge buildup of SAM and methionine. And it was a buildup because you stopped translating protein. This starts a signaling process that we're going to get to. If you ask what happens in terms of lactate production, because everybody always talks about, you know, these build-up products and where they go, lactate that was labeled fell. And so we're starting to figure out where glucose is actually going. And it's not where you think, and it's exciting. Now, I'll tease that at the end. If you actually then say what happens in terms of glucose consumption, it went up. So they're using glucose to survive, but they're not using it the way they were. And then we went and looked at our mitochondrial cycle and found that it just, the mitochondria turned off. They weren't using their mitochondria to compensate. So they were actually looking somewhere else. I'm gonna try to keep this simple. So just go with me. We went and said, well, what, you know, the easiest other byproduct is glutamine, completely fell out. But then all of a sudden the tumor started to evolve on fat. And so we started tracing fats. And so extracellular uptake of fatty acids is incredibly important for tumor biology. So not only is the 
Coke and the Nutter Butter, appropriate for this conversation, the Nutter Butter with all its fat content is incredibly important. And so we started looking at the accumulation of fat droplets and went and looked at the rest of our amino acids. And so remember I told you I was going to tell you, we got an accumulation of branch chain amino acids. And so all of a sudden we have now a really huge clue of what's going on. Upregulation of a thionine biology, upregulation of branch chain amino acid biology, loss of serine biology. I'm hungry. That's what the cell is saying but I'm not eating. This leads you to a really fancy mechanism involving mTOR. And what that is, is the amino acid sensing mechanism of a cell. And so upregulated branch chain amino acids activate mTOR. And this goes through what's going, I'm gonna show you a cute little picture. Gator is usually, Gator 2, so if you're a huge University of Florida fan, uh, you, you can think of uh, that I finally found something I can pun. But Cestrin usually segregates Gator 2 away. SAMTOR usually uh, segregates Gator 1 away. And this is why all the mTOR biology uh, trials have failed because you don't have a lot of active mTOR unless you start suffering from amino acid starvation. So in presence of high leucine, cestrin goes away, gator one comes to gator two, it inhibits this, you activate mTORC one. So we had found this initial fall in one signal in terms of mTOR signaling, in terms of the nucleic acid synthesis pathway, but mTOR signatures went up. And so then, because I always like to translate things, uh, we started playing with different drugs and it led to my grad student doing heroic work for two years. Uh, but basically she figured out how the drug that was working worked, which actually turned out to be the mTOR pathway. But basically she showed that something called P70S6 kinase activity went up in response to PHGDH inhibition. And so really that was the survival pathway. I basically said, I'm hungry, feed me. And that's why I don't die with this blockage, right? And so let me get you to the next simple part. Can we find the right drug here, right? Because the whole goal is to kill things. And so there are two kinds of mTOR inhibitors. There's the classic one, which is rapamycin. And there are ATP binding site inhibitors. This molecule complex is so big, there are different ways to drug it. And very early on, I had given my grad students a drug called perhexylene, which is usually a beta oxidation inhibitor. Uh, it's actually turned out to be an mTOR inhibitor in the ATP binding pocket. And we actually looked on the effects on like proving these drugs worked, right? But then if you take non-rapalog inhibitors and you add them to the PHGDH inhibitor, nothing happens. If you take it and add it to a, an ATP binding pocket, all of a sudden you start getting cell death. Well, that's actually something. The first time I've actually used the word death, right? I actually started to kill things. Killing things makes me happy. Killing things should make you happy, right? You want to kill your tumor. And so all of a sudden we said, oh, look, perhexylene, which is used to treat heart, uh, heart attacks in Australia, might be able to be used with this drug. And 
this drug does the first drug only works when the second drug works. And the first drug only works in osteosarcoma. So you probably are looking at something that's going to be relatively non-toxic, right? And so we then went and looked at the drug that's not in the paper, which is a drug from invention, which is ALP13MT55. I didn't name that either. And what you see is this is actually the drug we can translate. Perhapsin, though, sexy is a very short half-life. This drug doesn't. It's actually a designer mTOR2 inhibitor or mTOR1 inhibitor to the ATP binding cascade. And you really end up with a nice death. Now we're up here at least in culture at 60%. And then we went and did a whole bunch of controls you don't care about. But what you see kind of big picture is that when you inhibit a biology that's not dependent on mTOR that involves amino acids, you turn this on and say, I'm hungry. And if you drug that, then you short circuit the survival pathway and cause death. But then you want to say, well, does this work? And this works in a really exciting way. So let me jump ahead to the mouse experiment. So these are the kind of things you have to be very careful about. So if you watch tumors grow in a mouse, this one grows out in about 18 days. If you give it a PHGDH inhibitor, you get about a two to three day shift. And if I stretch this and make it really big, you, you might think that I have a positive result. There are parts of this that are statistically significant, but probably clinically, clinically meaningless. If you look at perhexylate, you get about the same shift. These drugs aren't doing very much. That's actually quite exciting. The mice don't care if they're getting them. You might put them in common. All of a sudden, now for 30 days, tumors just sit there. And they're small tumors, and we're analyzing them right now to figure out why they're either not completely going away or what's left. And so this is the idea of a dual metabolic biomarker-driven therapy. So drug one only works in the biomarker. Drug two only works when drug one works. And the combination is the only one that works in the biomarker. And so what comes out of this is a really neat finding that we can create an ATP dependency through mTORC1 that when drugged leads to just flatline of the tumor. It actually goes out another 30 days before we just took down the experiment. At some point, I'm just spending money. But this was just an exciting finding. We went and repeated this also with the ALP13MT55 assay. They got the same thing. And so what you see is you can get a drug that's not toxic and doesn't work by itself and get it to work just in cancer. This has been the hallmark of what my lab does, which is to create very tailored tumor-specific therapies. And so really, a lot of animation we can skip, but like this work has just been funded by everybody. I think this really is funded by Don Merkel. Uh, you know, Don Merkel is the hero of this. She's partnered not only with MIB, but with Kelsey's Hope. Uh, there's a lot of osteosarcoma in Edwardsville, and uh, Kelsey's Hope is a, a foundation that's uh, just across the river. But, you know, there's a lot of partners. There's a lot of people that have worked with us. There's a lot of people that have supported us. And, you know, the team at Andy Anderson for just jumping in with our, you know, our uh, immunohistochemical analysis, uh, showing whether or not this was even worth pursuing. This is how great Andy Livingston was. He was like, sure, but as only Andy does. And if you take that all together, this is the story of how we're actually taking apart 
own tumors from other tumors and why they're different and how I'm hoping that we can get these drugs together in patients soon. And it's going to take some early development of one, the other one's coming really fast. And so this is coming in a really exciting way for everybody. So I hope this in a very complex way was hopefully simple enough for people to grasp. Thank you, Dr. Van Tyne, um, for making it as simple as possible. <laughs> Still very complicated for um, mere mortals, but um, but really um, brilliant, brilliant science and very exciting, especially for the people with whom you speak today. <laughs> um, and I want to say on uh, John Merkel, you know, because of Sam, you know, having, we say this all the time at MIB, whatever magic you have, bring that magic and, and use it for, use your powers for good with that magic. And so Don doing a chili cook-off, you know, is funding this research and can, and can save lives along with all of, with all of your other, with all, with all of your other partners. It's really, it's, it's so meaningful. Thank you. I, it's the world's most, I, I, the, the money they raise at a chili cook-off is insane. It's insane. I couldn't be more humbled and more thankful because, but this really does show that directed dollars to laboratories. She comes to my group meetings. She gets to see what her investment does. It really does show that we're just not taking the money and doing what we want. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and speak for, for the people on my level and, and ask the very low hanging fruit, possibly quite stupid question. Um, what role, <laughs> thank you. You can have my question in 3D now. Um, <laughs> um, what role does, what, can I ask this question? Is this just completely, what role does diet play then in, does that have anything to do with this? So Should I put my nutter butters away, like for good? I, you know, I think it's a fascinating question. And the answer is ultimately that diet is incredibly important. The corollary to that is we don't know what part of diet is important. Uh, I, I think that, you know, everybody went to started, you know, there's always a fat. And that makes giving these kind of lectures so dangerous, right? If I run, you know, if I say everybody should be on a ketogenic diet, you'll never touch another nut or butter again. Until you realize even on a ketogenic diet, the liver makes enough glucose that the tumor never notices. And so, you know, does exercise matter? Clearly, that seems to have a huge component to that. That may be more of the lipid biology. But you can't run out and say, I'll never eat methionine again. You also can't. <laughs> and so, you know, this is where this gets hard. And so, is calorie restriction work for mTOR inhibitors in breast cancer? Sure. Do mTOR inhibitors with calorie restriction work in osteosarcoma? Nobody's shown it. And so this is where this is hard. And so where everybody wants to do everything possible, <laughs> everything possible, you know, I look at it in terms of the therapy you're on. If you lose too much weight on chemotherapy, I can't treat you. And so, and you know, if you go on a really healthy diet during chemotherapy, you may drop your cancer out of cycle. And if you drop your cancer out of the cycle, the chemotherapy may not work. And so this is really complicated. You know, the data on like vitamin C 
everything works backwards, right? Antioxidants help tumors spread. And so it's really easy to make say things that sound good, but it's much harder that we don't know what it takes to dress like a pirate. <laughs> We don't so know. One out of six do. <laughs> <laughs> but we also don't know the answer to that. It's something that needs to be looked at. But, you know, I think it's hard to tell somebody that you can never have another banana again if it's your favorite food. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's only going to make a two week meaningful difference. I mean, these are, you know, if I thought, you know, we did this with synovial sarcoma, because there's a lot more reasons to put synovial sarcoma patients on glucose free diets. Bile is completely different, much more addicted, might actually have an impact. But do you know how hard that is to do permanently? Uh, and that's a, you know, it's a real question. And so it's really your goal, what you want to do, but also I think it's also important not to quit living. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Many faces of Brian Van Tyne. <laughs> Kara, go ahead. So we have the question, is this for primary tumor treatment or metastases or both? Well, so the clinical projection for development is going to start with metastatic patients, uh, mainly because that's going to be easier to do because you have to start with phase one clinical trials. We don't do that in the curative patients first. Remember, your curative regimen, well, it sucks is one of the best regimens in all of cancer for in terms of outcomes data outside of lymphoma and leukemia. If you go to solid tumors and say, if you do this, you have a 70 to 80% chance of never coming back. That's an amazing therapy, right? And so my goal is eventually, once we get it show that it works in the metastatic setting, to replace the two weeks of high-dose methotrexate later within the curative setting. You have to move backwards because you don't want to make a mistake with something that works so well. What is the next step? What do we, what happens now? So the next step is actually involving understanding something called glycogen biology. And so in all the on and off switches that happen within the mTOR biology, there's something called GSK alpha and GSK beta, which stands for glycogen synthase kinase alpha and beta which is what we're really focused on right now, because we want to make sure that we're pulling the right partner drug for PHGDH. And so what we've been really heavily working on right now is actually figuring out this cascade of on and off switches within the mTOR cascade above gated. Once we know whether or not it actually has to be an on or an off, we're then going to push on our, our friends with lots of money uh, to get us this PHGDH inhibitor and just help us put it into trial. And this data shows that osteosarcoma makes more sense than any other tumor. And remember, they developed these drugs for breast cancer. Okay, question. Um, what is the potential for translation to other sarcomas, uh, such as Ewing? So, hey, Kurt. So <laughs> what's interesting about Ewing's is Lee Hellman has shown this pathway is linked to Ewing's. But Ewing seems to be able to short circuit the biology with serine and glycine. And so one of the areas that I don't know if we're gonna go into, cause I'm gonna talk about, I, I don't wanna, there aren't enough of us to work in, for two people to work in the same place. 
that doesn't make any sense in my head, right? I mean, if you say how many osteosarcoma researchers are there and how many should work in the same place, the answer should be one should work in every place as long as they're not. Uh, as long, you know, there's too many places to look, right? And so if he's going to keep pursuing it, I think that, you know, we're, we're happy to give him reagents, we're happy to help. I'm happy to let somebody else do it, you know, but there's a different searing transporter biology. And so you may need a third drug there. But that third drug might affect serine biology throughout the body. And so we kind of have to figure out how to use maybe the LSD1 inhibitor or something in the middle of this to kind of develop this, these ideas. But no, there was just a paper in Molecular Cancer Therapeutics on this that shows there is biology in Ewing's. The um, PHGDH expression that you're talking about, um, are patients currently ever stained for that expression? Or is that something that you would do eventually when you have these drugs on the market for them? So I think the first time anybody heard about PHGDH in osteosarcoma is when our paper came out. And so, you know, this is a relatively new drug target. And I think we're going to have to start stratifying patients based on it because I think it's one of the strongest biomarkers in osteosarcoma that isn't just a transcription factor. Because, like, clearly you've got high osteosarcoma, but within that you've got a, a PHGDH high and a PHGDH low, and they're going to start to stratify. And so this is something that I think the whole community needs to start thinking around because a 15-year overall survival difference in a biomarker is a little stunning. Yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. Like, why is that? How did that, that just came up in your, in your lab? Well, I was like a postdoc? No, it was me coming out of clinic one day saying I hate methotrexate and then kind of put the two thoughts together, which is if we're using this drug only in, the only place we use it in sarcoma is an osteo, right? And so if the only place we're using it is an osteo, we're using it there for a reason. There must have been a biologic reason and we followed it backwards. Remember, the greatest assets, and this, and it breaks my heart that we have it, our greatest asset is the patients we have. You have to pay attention not just to what the mice are doing. You have to pay attention to the patients. Uh, what, question, what questions and tests should a patient ask their treating physician uh, for at the stage of relapse? That's a really good question. You know, I think the first thing that needs to happen is you have to understand where they relapsed. You know, a single isolated pulmonary nodule relapse is very different than it showing up everywhere at once. I think at this point in time, if you don't have genetic testing done on your tumor, uh, you might miss an opportunity. And so I think that, you know, I'm a great believer in tempest testing at this point. Uh, tempest testing gives you two things. One, the RNA pattern of your tumor, the DNA pattern of your tumor, but it also tells you if you actually have a predisposition at the same time. You know, is there something that caused you to get osteosarcoma? Do you have lefromenia? Uh, or do you, you know, recently we found another one that was a retinoblastoma patient with osteosarcoma that never had retinoblastoma. And so I think knowing the genetics of your tumor, especially at relapse, I don't know if it matters up front, I don't think there's anything that would change what I would do up front based on genetics at this time. I'd like to see that change. We haven't done, you know, we've been doing the same band march for about 40 years, but I'd like to see that change. But at relapse, if you don't know your entire genetics, 
with the rapidly advancing drugs, with the fact that HER2 ADCs are coming out, with the fact that all sorts of options are there if you know what tumor you have. You know, you may want to have discussions if you're MIC high about adding something in. You know, I think that these, osteosarcoma is not one disease. You know what I mean? It's not one disease. I think we actually need to start very clearly defining the subsets, which is why I was so glad to see a MIB partner with uh, Count Me In. We need 5,000 osteosarcomas to create a tree, right? At which point we'll get a really good idea of who's good, who's bad, and what's there. And whether you go after the new P53 inhibitors that should be coming from Josh, or you're coming after the new MIC inhibitors, or you end up just running the gamut with bad things with the stuff I'm working on, or you know, even my ASS1 biology is quite interesting within osteosarcoma, and it's slightly different. You know, there is a good chance that one day we'll be talking about osteosarcomas normally. And then you'll have to have like MIB rooms for each and every different one. And at that point, we're really successful. Because I'd like to see much more genetically tailored therapies. But it's hard in a disease where there's only 500 or so people that would enter the, enter the queue a year. With actionable targets, you can only pick one, right? Uh, it's hard to know what to do when first line has failed on has failed someone. How do you decide what things to act on? So I, I think one of the luxuries I have is the high amount of clinical trials available at my institution. And so usually what I'm sending off uh, for genetics, which take a month to come back, uh, you know, I have already put somebody in a clinical trial looking at a new agent, uh, you know, looking backwards towards the old agents, they're always there, I can always use them. I also know how they usually work, so therefore I can save them for later. Whereas, you know, when cabazatinib first came across, you know, that was transformative. Some of the oral medications, you know, it's also a look at the patient, right? You know, some people don't want chemo anymore. Some people were really burned by it. And so there's really that conversation of what are your goals versus what do I have access to versus whether or not it's take it or leave it. And I always recommend if you get put in the position of take it or leave it, you take it. Because if you leave it, you'll never know if it works, right? And so I think it's getting your genetics and then figuring out what your targets are, followed by what your options are. And there's a lot of options for the treatment of osteosarcoma. You know, but I, I think if there are any hidden blockbuster outcomes, they're, not, they're on trial right now. They're not something where I just pull it off the shelf. And so really, I think you're looking for an accessible clinical trial. And an accessible clinical trial is one that you can continue to access if it works. You know, it sounds really good to fly from LA to Boston once to go on a clinical trial, but when you have to go every week for three years, you know, at some point, do you want to do that? So this has to be accessible. It has to be something you can get to. It has to be something that doesn't make it so that you live to be on a clinical trial. And so you have to kind of balance what access means to you. So the next question is from a family that's in Austria uh, about what the cooperation is between the continents and how do we share across continents? Oh, that's so tricky. Uh, 
sharing across continents has been difficult to get to phase three clinical trials. Uh, part of it is the US regulatory network. So European trials don't wanna pay for the insurance to open here. Uh, believe it or not, the liability to open up a trial in the United States from Europe is a big deal. They're not used to it. You know, going the other way, the fi international financing of going backwards is difficult. You know, it's all big money, uh, which is really sad to say, right? Like, but it is big, big money. And so, you know, if somebody's putting up $10 million to do a phase three clinical trial, they open across the world. They want the marketing across the world. You know, if you ask, do I work with Robin Jones on a daily basis? The answer is yes, that's London. You know, do I work with Sebastian Bauer in Essen? The answer is yes. You know, do I talk to Sylvia Santiati in Italy all the time? Yes. You know, so as a community, we're all connected. There's a trial problem, that, especially in early trials, it's hard. Because, uh, you know, I'm lucky to get the trials. I get up off the ground, off the ground in the first place. And so uh, I'm hoping one day MIB hits it rich with the lottery and then can just fund these things as they need to happen. So does MIB. <laughs> Can't win if you don't play. That's right. That's right. We got we to gotta get on that. Um, we got to get on that because, my goodness, we need to solve this. It's, this, uh, it's a crisis for for us it's you know you you look at the patients more patients in the eye than than we do and it's you know the pain um okay so we've got to sadly wrap up our wrap up our story here but um really exciting with um perhexylene who, yes. who knew look and i could say that one um okay so uh, i know the team has some burning questions here um what other profession would you like to attempt well i am an amateur musician and play the oboe in an orchestra so uh when i finally get done with this i think that's all i'd like to do it makes me happy uh, what was your first job this one <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, but true, like I, I actually, my first job was actually as a, uh, you know, I, I went to uh, from high school, from high school straight to college, from college straight to medical school, from medical school. I also did grad school. Then I did my internship, my residency. And my first job was as a sarcoma doctor. I was very privileged that this is my first and only job, which is kind of a cool story. I never really thought about it. So thanks for asking. <laughs> Uh, the privilege is ours. We're really, I'm glad you, you had that osteosarcoma patient. You can't meet an osteosarcoma patient and not be changed. I, I believe that. Ryan, go ahead. What inspired you to be a researcher? You know, the fun part about being able to come into work, ask a question, and kind of follow whatever you feel like every day. As a, it, it's kind of fun because you get to figure out if you're right, you get to challenge yourself. And, you know, I, I always found that I grounded myself in something real, like osteosarcoma, and actually really helped focus where I went. And, you know, we, we live very privileged lives and uh, as, you know, medical researchers. And if anybody tells you otherwise or whines about it, they're not paying attention. We live very, very privileged lives. I mean, how often can I come into work? You know, I, I only work seven days a week and I don't have a job. I just kind of have this never-ending hobby, right? Because I'm doing what I want. Nobody tells me to come. Nobody tells me to go. And you just get to create. And it's that creative aspect that kind of drives me. What do you need to accomplish your work? And how can we make it better? 
two million dollars. No. <laughs> uh, no, I don't have a, a Goldfinger uh, background. Uh, you know, I, I think that support is always important. I think buy some chili for Don. Uh, her, 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 her event is coming up right now. I know it's gone virtual this year. It's going to definitely cut into our project's finances. So if make it better, it can make it chilly. Uh, any support through that would actually help because that's the money that goes directly to funding these projects because it's a dedicated stream only for osteosarcoma. And we don't let that money leave that box. And so, yeah, thank you for asking. That's amazing. Um, okay, last, this is a burning question uh, coming in. Uh, and it's a it's a big one. It's not a, it's not an easy one that you can answer with oboe. Um, <laughs> has perhexylene been evaluated in glioblastoma on the simple and perhaps naive assumption that glucose metabolism is preferential in the brain? So, perhexylene is used to treat chest pain, and uh, has never really been looked at in cancer until now. And we just found that uh, it, there's a funny story behind it, which is it's supposed to be a CPT1 and 2 inhibitor. The classic one is etamoxir. And so being the clinician, I made my grad student use etamoxir and perhexylate in her first experiment so that I could translate it. Etamoxir didn't work. Perhexylene did. She spent the next two years trying to figure out why. And so it was a fortuitous accident of me being a clinician that we're talking about a, an angina drug. <laughs> but it was really, you know, as a driving question in my lab is how are we going to drug this? That's where that came from. And so could it happen or have a role in glioblastoma? I, I think the AL drug will probably have a better role because one of the things about angina drugs is they have short half-lives. And I, I think we need to uh, uh, find a longer half-life drug. And the good news is I already have it. Okay, awesome. All right, we're in overtime. Uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna wrap it up um, with thanks to um, Dr. Brian Van Tyne for staying so long and asking, answering our questions. Um, next week, as I mentioned, we're taking a break as we make way for our Outsmarting Osteosarcoma finalists who were selected just this week by our scientific advisory board and our family fund holders. The finalists are Dr. Kurt Weiss, Dr. Lillian Gunther, and Dr. Scott Sauer. Yay. They, yay! they will share their research with a group of Factor 2020 participants, osteosarcoma experts, patients and patient families who will all vote on the 2021 $100,000 award. Also want to note that we don't have $2 million. So Osteobytes <laughs> and so much else that we do is made possible by listeners like you. Please consider donating to MIB agents. Be a super agent by being a monthly supporter. We'll send you some swag. Uh, more information on all of this on our brand new website. Go check it out and check uh, super agents. Thanks for joining us today. And of course, thanks to our guest, Dr. Brian Van Tyne, for your work, for being brilliant and cool, and for your dedication towards better. And thanks to our panelists, Kara, Ali, Ryan, and Amy. Um, we'll see you on March 4th when we have Dr. Corey Painter with us. Thanks, everybody. 
Be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our library of this and all Osteobytes topics and rockstar speakers. You can also listen to Osteobytes via podcast wherever you get your podcast.